Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's now been over a year since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I remember the feeling, like so many of us, just a few days before the invasion, wondering if Putin was really crazy enough to do this, or was this just bluster and bluff? Surely even he wouldn't do something that could escalate into World War III in Europe. And then he did. This is BBC News. I'm Lise Doucette, live in Kiev. These are the headlines now in the UK and around the world. Russia has invaded Ukraine. In those early days, as we looked on in horror, we thought this could be a new kind of war, a high-tech war with drones and hackers battling each other, Elon Musk sending Starlink satellites to Ukraine, deepfake videos of Zelensky surrendering a war between information and chaos. At the same time, the news was littered with images of burned out Russian tanks along the side of the road. Surely an obsolete form of technology that had been kicked into the gutter. Yet one year on, things look very different. No one talks about deepfakes now. Instead, we're looking back to the world wars and the trenches across the muddy fields of Europe. And the technology that the Ukraines have been begging their allies to send are those hulking things of the past. Tanks. Tanks with familiar names to children of the Cold War. Abrams, Challenger, Leopard. Being sent to fight Soviet-era machines. One year into the war in Ukraine, we're looking at the origins of the tanks in Ukraine. My guest today is David Wiley, the curator of the Tank Museum in Bovington in rural Dorset, home to the world's largest collection of tanks and where right now Ukrainian soldiers are being trained. If you've been listening to Patented since the beginning or you've gone back and binged all the episodes, then you will know that we did an episode about tanks right back at the start. So if you listen to that and then listen to this, you will know all there is to know about tanks. Enjoy.
David, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you with us. Oh, gosh, I mean, what an odd thing. Well, here we are a year a year into this war, this invasion of Russia into Ukraine. But who would have thought a year ago we would be having a conversation about tanks in Europe? It just seems odd that we're even having this conversation. Yeah, for, I don't want to sound like told you so, but at the Tank Museum, one of the things we tell a story, which is every time a tank has been used in combat... So at the end of the First World War, prime example, we're never going to need a tank again. We'll never fight a war like that again. That was the argument. And I think that repeat, it was the end of the Second World War. If one person can knock out a tank with a bazooka or Panzerfaust, as the Germans had back then, that was the end of the tank. 1980s, it was going to be attack helicopters. It was all sorts of things. And if you only just think about six, eight months ago, when the war had started... And we saw how all these Enlor and Javelins were taking out Russian tanks. That was the end of the tank again. Literal headlines, you know, the the death knell. And yet here we are. What do the Ukrainians want? They want more tanks. So that that circular motion, it, you can see it through history. The, the point I always go on about is when you actually look at it, what army will ever not want mobility some sort of firepower and some sort of protection. And those are those classic three things that make up a tank. It's kind of whatever we try and recall it, they'll come up with jazzy things in the future. They'll call them platforms. They'll call them all sorts of things and they'll come up with new names. But in the end, what it tends to look like is a tank because that seems to do the job that most armies want want to be done on the battlefield. But but I mean, we are using, we're hearing things, you know, drones, obviously, aircraft, obviously, but it just, I don't know why, surely a drone is better than a tank in terms of mobility and what it can do. At the moment, one of the key things for the Ukrainians is obviously they are trying to take back land that has been invaded. And if you think of certainly in Britain, the last two conflicts we've been involved in has been much more about counterinsurgency. It was more about defeating a hidden enemy. So I think we've been looking in a different direction. What the Ukrainians are doing now is much more like the Cold War. It is much more on the idea of holding onto or capturing land. And however clever a drone is, it doesn't actually do that. It might defeat forces, but it goes home at the end of the day. That's interesting. Think of your own garden, your house, whatever it is. That's all very well that we've got all this, you know, shoot things from the top window, whatever. But if there's a tank parked on your lawn, <laughs> you, you want to get it off, yeah? Yes. And, 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 you know, and that, that's quite an important thing to bear in mind that these the, the, the Ukrainians, and of course where I am at, down at Bovington, when we're recording this at this very moment, there's Ukrainians there doing their training on these tanks. They are desperately patriotic and they are desperately keen to kick out what they see as an occupier. Well, is there a symbolism? We'll come on to the origins of tanks in a moment. I just want to clear up this one. Is there a symbolism, do you think, for the Ukrainians saying to America and Britain and Germany, we want your tanks, these main battle tanks, things like the Challenger and the Abrams and the, I forget the name of the German one now. Yeah, the, the German Leopards. I would always say the tank is a symbol. Think about it in the sense of if you knock out a tank, you only have to again go back to the media recently. If we shoot down an aeroplane or a helicopter or whatever else is done, it doesn't have the drama of seeing what is that ultimate symbol of power, I think, for the military. It's a big heavy tank, you know, with a turret blown off. I do think, though, the Ukrainians are practically, because they know they've got to take ground again and they also have to defend themselves, there's bound to be a spring offensive 
that idea that there is a reality that they know that that tank has the firepower and the mobility to get around the battlefield and they're a big country so they're going to need that if they're going to defend themselves. So two things, these particular tanks, these Western tanks are a lot more, am I right in saying they're a lot more powerful, a lot more productive than the the Russian tanks, but they're all still old tanks, aren't they? We're talking about tanks really that date back to the Cold War 30, 30 odd years ago. Yeah, most of the the key designs, the Abrams, the Challenger, we're talking about the German Leopard tanks. They were originally put together in the Cold War. They've been upgraded over time, so they have new things on them, better levels of protection, very clever electronics, better communications, sighting systems. So all of that moves on, but underneath is you are talking about hulls that sometimes are 30, 40 years old. The problem the West got, I think, at the moment is... We have built, originally, we tried to, we could never match what was in the Cold War, the Soviet numbers of tanks. So we tended to go for technological sophistication. Ours always seemed to be better. They could outrange those contemporary Russian tanks with their firepower. We have better levels of protection on the NATO tanks than the original um, Soviet era tanks had. So in some areas, that gives us a great advantage. The problem, and you'll see it in the media at the moment, is that really because of the lack of the thought of warfare in Europe, as you just mentioned earlier, we weren't that bothered about tanks. So we've tended to let them drift. Well, that's the thing. I was kind of wondering what we did. Where did all the tanks live? I mean, they would just presumably be like mothballed somewhere. We weren't expecting war in mainland Europe anytime soon. Yeah, the, the number of units using tanks was consistently going down because... And again, just let's be honest, it's economics. It's It takes a lot of time to train a good tank crewman. It takes a lot of maintenance to keep that tank going. So it's not just the tank, etc. Governments don't want to do that in peacetime. So they want to take the classic phrase, peace dividend. You know, at the end of the Cold War, we will cut back on these things and we're never going to need that, that many again. Quite a few governments in Europe kept small numbers of tank forces. Some governments got rid of them entirely. Some later on realised they may have been making a state. The um, Royal Netherlands Army, the Dutch, for example, they got rid of their tanks. And now they're hiring a battalion back off the Germans again. So it's one of those you can understand why at the same time, if there's an awful lot of people hurrying around Europe at the moment looking in sheds going, well, it's all very well, we found the tanks, sir, but we haven't got the spare parts, the engine bits missing. Yeah, you, it's no good just having a tank. You have to have the support to go with the tank, the training, the spare parts, the supply line that keeps the whole thing going. It's interesting, David, that these tanks, the, the Challenger and the Leopard and the Abrams, these tanks were designed as a response to the Cold War. So in a way, they were designed to take on Russia. And here we are. 30-odd years later, <laughs> taking on Russia. Yeah, and taking on the very tanks they were designed to fight against. Yeah. So that's irony as well. So, yeah, the, the, the West tended to go for the idea that we would never build the same number of tanks as the Russians. There's real fundamental differences as well. Western tanks tend to be tanks for the defence, so they tend to have powerful guns, thick armour. They were less worried about mobility, but the Germans with their famous Leopard tank, that's where they were very clever. They made it a very mobile, fast tank over the battlefield. The Russians, because they thought the Soviet Union, it was going to be attacking the West using its tanks that way. Their tanks tended to be lower profile, so they were smaller. 
They were going to be made in large numbers, but simpler. And that was their philosophy because they got a conscript army. No point training up all the soldiers like they're all Formula One drivers. You know, they had to keep it simple. Same with their tactics. And there was going to be a lot of them. And if they attacked, they were going to be in what they call echelon. One unit would basically get decimated attacking and another unit would follow straight on behind it in the same place. And because of that, you can see these design features in both the philosophies behind our tanks, for example, in NATO tanks, they're much better protected. Crew survivability was hugely important for NATO at the time. It gives the troops confidence as well as, you know, if you trained a tank man, you just don't want to be losing them in the first engagement. And you can see that still, those tanks, even though they are 30 years old, 40 years old, some of them, you can still see the NATO tanks tend to have the edge in terms of range, technology, firepower, sighting systems. Soviet-era tanks, the T-72s, T-64s, T-80s, they tend to have less sophistication on them but on the whole, there was more of them out there. David, just before we're going to get get into our DeLorean and go back in time in a moment. But just before we do that, imagine we are in a Challenger tank, a British tank, and we're now on the front line in Ukraine. Just tell us what it would be like inside. Imagine you and I are paint a picture of what's it like? What happens? How does it work? So think modern tanks much more like aeroplane cockpits. You are squeezed in there. The one person who's got a little bit more room is the guy who's picking up the rounds of ammunition. He puts a projectile in the breech of the gun first. Big bag of explosive or it's like a cardboard tube goes behind it. He has to have a bit more room to manoeuvre, but everyone else is pretty much surrounded. How many people? So on a modern tank crew, the British one, four, four in a Challenger two, drivers at the front, he's almost separated in his own little area, commander, gunner and loader, all in that turret space. And it's a very intimate space in the sense you are going to know what your mate had for breakfast sort of thing. So it, you've got to get on. The technology is amazing in modern tanks, but... It is the crew that uses that technology to the best effect. So to put it bluntly, you can have the best tank is always a, the tank with the best crew in it. And I would also say, having met the Ukrainians, the motivation they have is what really, really counts. It's great to have a gun that outranges the enemy. Great to be well protected. Challenger 2, if you're inside, it's got this best level of armour protection, pretty much any tank in the world at the moment. But at the same time, the real key is they are a team that rely on each other. So that idea of why they train all the time or why tank crews do this, a lot of the guys training on Challenger 2 from Ukraine at the moment, they're already tank crews who have served on other types of tanks. So it's a conversion right. rather yeah, yeah. than starting from new. And are they are they being trained in the UK, the, the, the Ukrainian? Yeah, literally at Bovington, where the tank museum is. They're here at the moment learning how to use that, just as there's other crews in Poland and other European countries being trained up to use the tanks that have been given. We'll be back after this short break. March 2023 marks 20 years since the start of the Iraq War. The war was waged to rid the world of a brutal dictator, yet it would end marred in controversy. So why did the Iraq War go so badly wrong? And what legacies has it left behind today? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and every Monday on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit, we're exploring a different aspect of this tumultuous period in history. We'll be asking, what was the role of the UK government and Prime Minister Tony Blair? Could the Secretary of State 
legally order British forces into Iraq and could British forces follow that law? And how did ISIS rise from the destruction left behind? But ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to, to know very well in uh, the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. Join me, James Patton Rogers, on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit as we look back on one of the most controversial conflicts in recent history. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, let's get in our DeLorean. I want to go back to the First World War. The word tank itself has an interesting origin, I believe. Yeah, so a British invention in the First World War, the design was really, they had a definite problem. It was, they've got to try and get British soldiers across the ground between the British trenches and the German trenches in France and Belgium. The Germans had attacked, they captured some the best ground, they set up their barbed wire, machine gun posts, all that sort of imagery you typically associate with the First World War. How do we get infantry across no man's land, the bit between the trenches, to break in, it was a phrase, into the German trenches and then break out the other side. And in Britain, we very quickly started thinking we need a mechanical monster of some sort to do this, a battering ram. And that's why we come up with the first idea of the tanks. And at the museum, we actually have the first prototype tank. It was jokingly called Little Willie. It was a pun on the Kaiser's name. It looks like a water tank. There's no two ways about it. It looked like a riveted water tank you'd see in your attic. There was an element of secrecy as well, why they liked the word, because at one moment they were going to call them His Majesty's Land Ships, HMLS. <laughs> I quite like that. Yeah, and that gives the game away, you see. You know, when you know it's a land ship, you kind of get the gist quite quickly. So the word tank, quite early on, it picked up as an easy thing to say there was this jokey line about oh yes we were going to be building water tanks to go to russia you know they painted russian writing on the side of some it was to distract from what the item really was gosh that's interesting so th those early tanks were built in secret and were called tanks in just because they looked well we're, we're making water tanks ladies and gentlemen that's it there's a peculiar combination of quite high secrecy. Why the British Army came to where I am at Bovington in Dorset, it was well away from the public eye, you see, to train with this new secret weapon. When they offloaded the first tanks at the local station, everyone was told to look the other way, close their curtains, <laughs> not, 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 not even see these things. Nobody but, would have looked the other way. Everyone would have their curtains. Every day. Why aren't we allowed to look at them? Oh, crikey, what's that? Well, that's what made me laugh as well, because there's all these words about secrecy and everything. And then you see when they first trial some of the first tanks, everyone seems to have invited the wife along and a picnic and the family and let's have a look at what they're doing. But the secrecy seemed to work, though. The Germans really didn't have a wind of what was coming when that first tank attack went in. Isn't it interesting how war is such a driver of technology? When we see this, you know, time and time, you know, we're seeing it now with Russia and Ukraine and technology and everything else. Okay, Little Willie. First of all, 
So th- these ideas, these interesting ideas of land ships have been dotted around for, for, uh, for a long time. Who was it who said, right, we're going to build something, this thing, Little Willie? Was there, do we have a name? And maybe you could describe what it was he actually built, what Little Willie looked like. The army was thinking it may need something. The Navy, under Winston Churchill as First Lord of the Admiralty, Churchill is itching to get more involved in the land war. And he ultimately creates something called the Land Ships Committee. And the army and the Navy, after a little while of arguing with each other about who should be doing what, they come together, they form this committee... They go to a company called Fosters of Lincoln, which made agricultural tractors. The chap in charge at Fosters and an engineer called Walter Wilson from the Royal Navy Air Service. These two people come together and really Little Willie is almost like their baby. They've imported some track. The track doesn't work. They they redesigned track. And it's like a square box. Think of it like a whopping great big water tank riveted together. They have an engine in the middle of it. It was going to have a turret with a gun in, but they took that off quite quickly. But it was the tracks that were the key thing. And even as they made it, they realised that shape was wrong. It was going to get stuck in a German trench. So what they end up doing is coming up with that classic school rubber shape, you know, the old rhomboid yes, shape. Yes, that rhomboid tank. What's that tank called? That- so that the first version of that becomes Mother. They only make one version of Little Willie. They try it. They've learned how to do the tracks right. Mother comes along as a much better shape because it can straddle a German t- trench. And those big bits at the front, they call the horns, that's to crush the barbed wire underneath as it's going forward. And they put the guns on the side, same engine as Little Willie, same type of track, but just going around the outside. They end up having about 60 of those built for the following year, and they go into action in September of 1916. I remember as a kid looking at that show, there's something quite creepy about that shape. There's something quite, it's that kind of relentless, you know, you said the word monster. There is something quite monstrous about it, something. I mean, what was the reaction when Germans saw these bloody great things? I mean, we're sort of used to seeing tanks now, but imagine seeing that for the first time, having never seen a tank or even conceived of a tank. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that comes across on the first tank attack that is still true to this day, you can see it through history, because quite often you can't see the crew inside, they have this rather menacing effect. And the poor German soldier sitting in his trench trying to fire his gun at it, whatever he does doesn't seem to make any difference, etc. There is a fear factor about big, heavy vehicles, especially with tracks on, that is true to this day. So sometimes just turning up with a tank means you don't have to fight exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. And quite understandably, you know, if you can't feel that you can do anything about it, there's accounts of German soldiers running away, you know, the devil's coming, etc. Just we're going to have to whiz through history, so I apologise. Just in terms of the First World War, how instrumental was that tank? I mean, could we say, you know, without tanks, the outcome would have been different or or how how instrumental was it? No, I I would argue that in the First World War, tanks make a difference, but they are not the difference. You know, they're too crude. There's not enough of them. What's clever about the First World War is in many areas we design, even if we don't put into operation, pretty much all the types of modern tanks that we see today. So there's the first armoured personnel carrier, carry soldiers in a vehicle rather than let them follow on foot. We invent things like gun carriers, so they carry artillery forward, engineer vehicles that can lay a bridge or blow up mines. Even on the day the war ended, they were floating a tank on a lake outside London. So all of this idea of looking to the future, that World War One. They really did try all these ideas. It's World War II that they'd come to fruition. 
let's jump to World War Two. Obviously, when, when we think of tanks, that's kind of, well, for me anyway, that's kind of where my imagination goes. Obviously, we use tanks in Iraq and Afghanistan and everything else. But just let, take us very briefly into the into the Second World War, if you would, and, and the tanks that, that changed that war or defined that war. Yeah, so so for World War Two, I think most of us, if you're British, you grow up, you know, remembering stories about Blitzkrieg and how the Germans used the tanks at the beginning of the war. I think for the Second World War, it's like the tank comes to its maturity. It shows what it can do if it's used correctly. And because of that, I think everyone saw World War Two, the land weapon that gets photographed and filmed and was built in huge numbers is the tank. In Britain, we make our own tanks. We're very fortunate the Americans come along with the famous Sherman tank. In Russia, the Russians make this famous tank called the T-34, and they make them in huge numbers. There's a bit of contrast, really, to what we're looking at in the Ukraine today. Back then, the tank, think of it more like a hand grenade. If it lasted six weeks, that was a remarkable amount of time. Now, of course, in peacetime, we expect our tanks to be, you know, going on for years and years and years. But uh, come a day of battle, you know, the Russians, even the Americans, you know, that, that idea, this is a disposable munition and we're going to zip onto the Cold War now. Well, actually, the end of the, the Second World War, I suppose it wasn't it wasn't tanks that defined the ending. It was nuclear weapons. And I suppose, actually, at the end of the Second World War, weapons like the V2, the German V2, led to the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles in the Soviet Union and America. And suddenly you had this Cold War, which was not based on tanks, but based on sort of missiles. So in the Cold War... I always think of the the Soviets had seemed to be still developing tanks more than anyone else. Is that right? The Soviet Union carried on making and developing tanks after World War Two. In the West, there was a period of a bit of nervousness. You know, is it honestly going to be the way of wars of the future? And then one of these sideshow wars came along, the Korean War. Tanks were very useful there. So the next moment, the Americans think, oh, well, hang on a second, we better still build some. Yes. And on the whole, because of the sheer numbers the Soviet Union were building, and we're in the tens of thousands again, when the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union declared it got 90,000 tanks on its infantry. 90,000. 90,000. And of course, some were scrapped, some were declared, you know, they, as part of treaties, etc. they were chopped up or disabled. But huge numbers of those Cold War tanks were quite often left in yards or storage depots, The problem everyone's got now is, even in the West and in Russia, is how do you get them going quickly and efficiently enough? And and replace them with spare parts and get all that kind of stuff. And and, and, uh, train the people to use them as well. Let's pause. Let's go back to Ukraine. I'm interested. There seems to be... The Russians seem to have seriously miscalculated. We see a lot of of Russian tanks sort of burnt out on our television pictures. Are those tanks, the Russian tanks, they, they are old Cold War tanks, aren't they? There's nothing... You know, they seem to be very vulnerable. Again, not just the technology, it was the tactics. It was basically how they were being used. There was an arrogance in a number of the ways, you know, they did this, like the Americans would call it, a thunder run. They drive all their tanks down one motorway toward Kiev. A shock and awe. Yeah, and it didn't work because the Ukrainians had thought this through. They were waiting for them, had delaying tactics. They attacked from the side of the road. They were allowed to get close in a way that... You know, we at the time we were talking to British Army tank soldiers who were just horrified. You know, you'd always have people out on your flanks, keeping an eye, you know, protecting. It's what they call combined arms. Infantry and tanks always look out for each other, how they do that. 
And it's obvious the Russians, you know, made a huge number of very poor mistakes. It's really... I am no military historian, but even I'm like, crikey, you know, I, I grew up in the Cold War and you, you had images of the, of the Red Army, the Soviet Army and tanks and this great military machine. And I'm like, wow, they're not doing very well. You know, we can talk and I, I work at a museum where we, we can get fascinated by the technology, you know, but just in from both sides point of view is obviously, you know, we are hugely supportive of the Ukrainian effort at the moment. But these are real people out there, those young Russians, you know, that are getting killed in huge numbers. They are being hugely let down by their military machine and their government. Yes. Because many of them are conscripts. They're not very well trained. They are not that well motivated. Many of them don't want to be there. I say that in a manner of because there can be a tendency of looking at some of the battles a little bit like they're somehow computer games and forgetting that when we see that on the videos, that's a real person getting blown up. So I do hope that the Ukrainians can use these new Western tanks wisely you know, to great effect. But it, we're not giving them very many. This is the, this is the thing. I mean, do you think, even though the, the numbers of tanks that, that Britain and America and Germany are, are going to provide is small, do you think they will make a, a difference militarily, not just symbolically, but actually physically? Do you think those, well, perhaps the superiority of those tanks is enough to make up for the small number? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think there are enough. They are in many ways a symbolic gesture. So the British giving them challenge or two earlier this year, it was really a way of levering open the European doors to make the Germans give more leopard tanks because there's more in Europe to give. At the same time, again, having met the guys who are going to crew those tanks, I can't help believe that they will do their utmost with that kit to really make a difference out there. You know, at times, and this is where it's also important, you know, we always go for the top trumpets, this has got a bigger gun, it's got this and everything. Sometimes one tank on the battlefield at the right time, especially if there's no other enemy tanks there or no other way of knocking them out, or that in itself may lead to a victory. It can be a small number can make a difference at certain times. And I also think as well, we have to think about it from the Ukrainian point of view, we're thinking about these tanks, you know, maybe in the wrong way. They've got to go on for years or be maintained and everything. If it just has one day of successful battle for the Ukrainians, maybe that's good enough. I wonder if we got in our DeLorean and went forward a bit. We could. It's really interesting. I can't. I cannot see how this conflict ends. I fear a little bit for the future in, in, in Europe, and I, and I wonder what's going to happen. Are we going to enter an, an, another Cold War? And if so, is tank development going to... Presumably, it will be rekindled slightly. It's like, okay, well, back to tanks again. Here we go. I agree. And you don't want to sound, because so often when we talk on the, down these lines, you feel afterwards like, are we all being doom-mongers and we're worrying everyone, etc. But I do, though, because, again, for our own, we, we're, I'm, we're part of a teaching establishment. So the current sold, British soldiers are going through, you know, and we teach them, how, can we learn from history? What are we being able to learn? My question is, are we at a 1938 or a 1939 moment in our history again? Should we all be waking up to the fact that actually we can't ignore, we want to watch Strictly Come Dancing, we want all those lovely things, we want the food in the shops, we want to be entertained, etc. But is it like, you know, the Roman games where the barbarians are at the gate and we're trying to politely ignore it, that, that, that actually, you know, Europe is at war and there will be a point. We've had the benefit of the channel, you know. We, You talk to a Polish person, they are really aware that their border, 
They and the are Moldovans the and the Latvians and Absolutely. everyone else. Absolutely. So it sounds, you know, sounds like we're doing some wake up Britain type cry, but it, it is a worry. I would agree with you. I, uh, it's very hard to see a way out. We do not. Russia will exist as a country into the future. We have got to find a way of living with Russia. But boy, do you feel sorry for the Russian people that they seem to have had a history of appalling leaders leading them into situations like this. A year ago, I tweeted, I was, when, when, when the invasion first happened, I sort of tweeted, oh, well, this will be going to be over in a week. You know, there'll be a palace coup. There'll be, Putin will go. No one, nobody in Russia will stand for this. Da, 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 da. How wrong I was. I won't ask you to predict what's going to happen in this conflict. But just in your opinion, do you think tanks have a future? I always say the line here that if I was a betting person, knowing the history of the tank you would be a fool to bet against it now. They'll try and find some clever way of saying whatever the next generation is, it's not going to be called tank. It'll be some super-duper weapon platform or they'll come out with some jazzy phrase. Or the land ship. What was the nice land ship? His Majesty's land ship. His Majesty's land ship. I think we'll go with that. Yeah, so there's inevitably going to be something on the battlefield that looks like a tank again in the future. It may not be manned. It may be remotely controlled or run by AI, but you can't help but feel there's still a role for something that looks pretty much like a tank. That'll be going on into the future. That's my bet anyway. I think that's a good bet. David, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure just to get that. I know we've whizzed through history. We've whizzed through this particular topic, but it's been a a joy to have you on. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge. So there we go. Thank you very much for listening. Apologies for my lingering cold and the tone of my voice. I hope you've been enjoying the show. If you do, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends and your family, etc. all about it. And don't forget you can get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic we should cover or something you'd like us to investigate. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com. Thanks for your company. 